This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by the other hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi, Mark. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibovitz. Welcome to Adar 2, The Revenge of Adar. Are we in Adar Shani now? We've moved Tomorrow in? Tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh. We've segued in. You know what they say about the sequel. I, the body count's going to be much higher in this one. Today on the podcast, we talked to Jewish rock star and schlock rock auteur, lead singer of schlock rock, Lenny Solomon. And Gentile of the Week is Jane Austen scholar and roller derby queen, Devani Lozer. It's all so good this week. It's so, 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 so good. But you know what else is good, Liel and Stephanie? No. Can I, can I tell you what else is good? Before you even say it, let me guess. Which incredibly adorable bucolic pastime have you uh, spent your time with this week, Mark Oppenheimer? So you're tipping your hand. Our Protestant life correspondent, Mark Oppenheimer. What, what are you into <laughs> <Protestant> now? <laughs> Please just say New England. In the Gentile wilds. Um, so this was, this was great. You guys remember Primo Gentile of the Week, Andy Boone, uh, who talked to us about his various hobbies, one of which was curling. A big old Quaker. Yeah. So this year for his birthday, he rounded up the entire poker gang and said, I want you you guys to come to the Nutmeg Curling Club's Learn to Curl Night. He had us all sign up. He told us what gear we needed to acquire and everything. So last night, I went to my first ever curling event. I learned to curl. I went to the Nutmeg Curling Club's You Learn grabbed to the curl broom. In Bridgeport, Connecticut. I grabbed the broom. There is video of it. It was, it was me and Evan and Higby and Hollihan and Boone and all the homies. And we were curling. And it was... <laughs> No, no, look, Mark, last time I uh, belittled the sport, I ended up, you know, putting my, you know, foot in my mouth and, and then developed a... I think you put your skate in your mouth. A years-long obsession with, with hockey, which I now go to watch minor league games. So I'm, I'm going to tread very lightly here. But isn't this really like the most profoundly idiotic sport ever invented? So No, no. First of all, it's actually a lot of fun. But I'll tell you what it is. This analogy will give you the work to know whether or not you'd like curling. It is basically golf. You need to have a good bit of strength for the first shot. Like you definitely need to have some muscles, have to be able to get your hips in it and all that for, for the drive in golf and for the, for the toss of the, the stone in curling. <laughs> but beyond the muscle that you need, which is mostly about technique and torque and all that, you don't need like big biceps, but you need to be able to generate some strength. Beyond that, it's all finesse and all sort of placement by the, the cup or the hole. So it's basically golf on ice. So in other words, someone said, you know, I wish there was a way to keep all the stress of getting a little ball in a tight, small hole without all those nuisances like uh, open spaces and, you know, <laughs> beauty and air and fun. Well, really what it is, is it's also, it's also a less violent ice hockey because, you know, you suit up, you put on some sweaters, it's, it's cold and brisk. And then afterwards you quaff some, you know, hard ciders or stouts or ales, you know, there's a bar, there's a bar at the curling club. So you basically leave the ice, Oh, I love you, you this. know, you take off your muffler and your, your, your scarf, and then you, you toss back a couple. And it was, you know, we were there for two hours, about an hour 40 of curling, 20 minutes of having some drinks and getting toasty warm. And it's actually a lovely night. I, I have no cynicism about curling. I still hate golf, which is of course, you know, as Twain said, a good walk ruined. But curling, curl away, baby. Curl on, curl on. This is great, but I want our listeners to tell us about like the Jewish curling legends. Absolutely. I'm so glad you went there because I was thinking, I don't think I could be a great curler ever, but I did have that moment on the ice where I thought, 
could I be the world's best Jewish curler? Like, is that what no, he, is no, that no, within reach? Because you know that somewhere out there, there's like Chaim Brumstein, who's like <laughs> some, some Jewish guy from a yeshiva in Winnipeg who spent every, you know, a dark well, bath. Look, listeners, this is actually the perfect thing to crowdsource. I really do want to find the world's best Jewish curler. If we exist for anything, like we can't bring peace to the world. And we're going to discuss that in a moment. <laughs> but- can we locate the greatest living Jewish curler? I feel like, hey, Canadian listeners. By the way, if we can't, if we can't, who can? Right, we pack it in now. now. For such when? a time as this. <laughs> J. Crew, especially Canadian J. Crew, especially Frozen Chosen, could you find us the world's greatest Jewish curler and, and email us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869? This, I am very serious about this quest. And we're gonna get, we're gonna get that person on the show. We're gonna get him or her on the show for sure. Um, okay. So that's the important stuff in sort of light frivolous stuff. You know, Leo, what's going on in your corner of the world? Uh, my corner of the world has shifted these last few days. I am now back stateside, but not before I had one more romp in the holiest and most promised. So the day we're about to leave Israel, go back home, um, inconveniently a war started in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. a land war started in Europe. And it was kind of this ominous day. The entire trip, we had amazing, amazing weather. This one day, the day the war in Ukraine started, we wake up in the morning, it is pouring rain. We're about to leave the garage. We sort of block the garage because it takes us a while with, you know, two kids to get ready. We hear a car furiously honking. We look. Who do we see in this tiny little black sports car? The Tinder Swindler, our neighbor from across the (laughs) hall. And then we drive down Higher Cone Street. And we sort of get stuck in a three-hour-long traffic jam because my mother's apartment is literally right next door to the Russian embassy. And on a really serious note, I have to say, it made me so freaking proud to see that there were about 1,200 Israelis standing outside the Russian embassy and letting them have it. It really was a good sight. And it kind of made me think, I think it was an extra kind of element of local pride in it. I mean, obviously there are a lot of Ukrainian born Israelis and a lot of Russian born Israelis who feel very strongly about this, about this war. But I think there's a special point of pride here that President Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish. And I could almost imagine, you know, conversations sort of across dinner tables in Israel. It's like, Yes, I'm very proud of you for being a doctor, but do you know Mrs. Zelensky's kid? Because he's saving the world for democracy. Like, how do we ever bounce back from that? Dude's a legend. He's incredibly heroic, and his story is really, really fascinating. I mean, it seems like every single person in the world is now your Aunt Sylvia, because everyone on Instagram is like, can you believe this Jewish president? His And it's like, it's so interesting, because I'm, I'm so curious whether non-Jews, like whether people in Ukraine, like whether his Jewishness is only, it's, it's really just so interesting to us as Jews in America, or if it's, it's part of the wider conversation. Like I, I just, American Jews seem to be activated, particularly like if you open your Instagram feed, everyone suddenly is like sharing these images of him specifically. And I wonder if it's given us a way into this conflict and in a weird way. I love this, but on a, on a kind of even more serious note, Bernard Henri Levy wrote a piece for Tablet that I thought was very interesting. There's something really special about Zelensky in that he was this comedian, this clown, basically this stand-up guy who was, you know, renowned for his like parodies and his, his satires. And he became, as the moment was sort of thrust upon him, 
became a really sort of noble leader who who fought a war. I think Bernard Henri Levy wrote a line along the lines of, you know, someone who wages war without ever loving it, uh, which is actually sort of a difficult and almost biblical thing mm. to do. You know what I mean? Like he's here, the moment is upon him. He responds to the call without not an ounce of sort of bravado and bitterness. It's just, I don't know, I find this tremendously inspiring. And and really Jewish. I keep thinking of that that phrase from like the movies, like it's like some are born great, some what is it like? Some have, have greatness, greatness thrust, upon, thrust them. upon them, right? And like that to me is what's happening here, and it's really remarkable. Do you ever notice the tank, the Russian tanks at the border? What's what's the deal with that? I have to say, I've been thinking a lot about Ukraine as Israel in this case of like trying to you know having very heavily armed neighbors at the gate and trying to maintain its independence albeit independence with a, you know, minority people who have historically understandable allegiances to the other countries that are at the gate. And yet here they are trying to hold it together. And I've, am I the only one? I can't be the only one. No, no, no. It's a very, it's a very profound observation. I think the one great big difference is that unlike Israel, Ukraine tragically gave up its nukes in 1994, which is a large part of why it's in the predicament it is in right now. Is that right? Why did they Why did they do that? Was that because part of- Because they received promises that they will be well taken care of by the West. By NATO. Surprise, surprise. Freaking NATO. As, as, as uh, Zelensky said to Biden when the latter offered a ride to safety out of Ukraine, he said, I don't need a taxi. I need ammunition. Right. <laughs> it's really hard to sort of be- so far away and to be watching this. And I think in many ways, this is being mediated on social media in, in, in a strange new way. And, you know, our thoughts are with the Ukrainians. There's a, so many Jews in America have Ukrainian roots, so many Jews in Ukraine still. You know, Connecticut, where I live, we're near the Naugatuck Valley, where which is largely Eastern European immigrants, Russian, Polish, Ukrainian, non-Jewish. It's, it's Gentiles, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox, Eastern European immigrants. And there are Ukrainians all over, and they tend to be first generation. I've interviewed one or two of them when I did alumni interviews for Yale of these kids whose parents had come to escape poverty, and they love their country so much and are very torn that they have to be here for work. I only say that I, I hope they emerge into all of this a more peaceful and secure and also soon by you prosperous country. Amen, Salah. Now, Mark, um, to cap things off on a cheerful note, this is yeah. not the only encounter with the harshness of reality you've had this week, is it? It is not. Boy, do I have a story for you. As you know, I was on the road late last week, did two wonderful cities. The second of them was suburban Philadelphia, Penn Valley, where I was at Har Zion. Terrific conservative shul, Dr. Levine, Rabbi Sean, Rabbi Seth Haas, amazing people. It was so much fun to be there. What great audiences. But before that, Thursday night, I gave a keynote address at a festival of Jewish learning at Cal State University, San Luis Obispo on the Central Coast, halfway between San Francisco and LA. Why was there a festival of Jewish learning? Let me tell you why. Because a couple years ago, a swastika was drawn on the pavement inside the gate leading up to the front door, very much on their property, of the A.E. Pi house, the Jewish fraternity house at Cal State San Luis Obispo. And the brothers of A.E. Pi ended up collaborating with San Luis Obispo Hillel, with the local federation, with various other nonprofits in town, the JCC, to do a festival of Jewish learning in this town, small town, agricultural college, San Luis Obispo, near Pismo Beach on the coast, if that means anything to you. Yes, we all saw Clueless. I, right? The Pismo Beach Disaster Fund. That's exactly what I thought. They're raising money for the disaster at Pismo Beach in Clueless. So 
they wanted to do a, a, a three-day festival of Jewish learning, and I got to be the keynote speaker, and it was terrific. Most of the people who turned out for it, obviously not Jews. This is San Luis Obispo, but lots of Jews, way more Gentiles, allies, et cetera. Anyway, I visited the A.E. Pie House, and I met a couple of the brothers. I met Toby, who's going to be the best camp Ramad director ever. That's his career goal, and he has all of that energy. And then I met Hayden, and he told me the most haunting story. And I got tape. I took out my iPhone, and I got tape. Liel and Stephanie, will you indulge me as I play this tape for you? Yes, please. My name is Hayden Fletchner. I'm a Jewish student at California Polytechnic State University. I'm studying civil engineering, and I'm the former president of Alpha Epsilon Pi. February of 2021, just give me, like, bullet point, what happened? My entire house woke up to two spots of vandalism on our fraternity house. There was... On the outside public sidewalk, there were swastikas in between two of the properties we ran out. And then someone came into our house and drew swastikas on the sidewalk leading up to our front door. So on top of one of the swastikas, um, there was the word Jew on one of the, on the, I believe the swastika that was on the sidewalk of the public roadway. So the slur was just the word Jew? Yes. But you know when it's on top of a swastika that's been spray-painted, they don't mean it the nice way. That's correct, yeah. What was the response afterwards? One of my, one of my good friends, Noah, he actually... Here I have to stop to say that yeah. your, entry, your sort of foyer is furnished only with a table with red Solo cups on yes. top of it. This is like... And this yeah. is <laughs> And a cornhole game. This is, and some speakers. This is truly... Yeah. This is truly okay. Greek chic. Oh, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. fraternity. Yeah. This is classy. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, continue. Yeah, so Noah uh, came over here the morning that it happened, um, and he consulted uh, one of our executive board members, um, and they made a statement. They stood outside in front of our chapter house and wanted to share with the world what happened to us because it was something that we've never experienced before and something that I don't think a lot of people have ever seen, especially, you know, for a fraternity house. So to show me where this was, where the, the one where they came inside, inside your property and did this. Yeah, it was, it was right here. The next morning we wanted to make it aware to the world so we could raise money for a security system and we could raise money for a power washer because we could not afford either of those. And we didn't have either of them. So that's why we decided to share with the world, started to go fund me and it, um, it got international attention. How much did you raise? We raised, um, I believe, a little bit more than twenty-seven thousand dollars. So that's that's a that's more than you need for a power washer. Yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Half of it went to the Jewish Community Center of San Luis Obispo for in efforts to um, sponsor a Jewish learning festival for this uh, community of San Luis Obispo. Oh wait, that's why I'm here. Yeah. Right, so that paid for me. Absolutely. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you, World Jewelry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so as we're here in the elegant courtyard of the Ape High House, I'm now looking at the street, and it looks like, uh, you know, we're in college town, basically. Like, this is like drunk people pass by here on, what, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights? Just What are the party nights here? The most popular nights are Thursday through Saturday night. I like to think at the Jewish house, it's like, it starts no earlier than Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually, no, we, we start on Wednesday. We start on Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> do you, you, you know you know Animal House, the line about the Jewish house in the movie Animal House? Um, have you seen Animal House? I have, yes. I just checked with the guys at the Jewish house, and they said that every one of our answers on the psych test were wrong. Every one? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the incident, after this internationally publicized swastika yeah. incident, like what started happening? Yeah. So, I mean, we still, as a, as a social organization, um, throw events every weekend. Obviously, being on Hathaway Avenue, it's like a self-proclaimed strip of Cal Poly social life. And, you know, to be honest, after the event happened at our chapter house, almost every single weekend from March of 2021 to the end of our academic year in June of 2021, there would be groups of men and women walking by and screaming anti-Semitic slurs at us when, when we were hosting a party. There were groups of people walking by and, yeah, just screaming obnoxious things. This never happened before there was an internationally publicized anti-Semitic attack on your house. And afterwards, one of the bits of fallout was that with attention having been drawn to this house, your fellow students would start shouting anti-Semitic things at your house on Friday, Saturday nights. That's exactly what happened. And I mean, I was just telling you earlier about how, from my personal experience, I didn't really enjoy the press that we got because I lived at this fraternity house and I was more afraid that someone was going to come in and use force against us instead of just spray something on our sidewalk. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, everyone knows who we are at this point and because they feel so inclined to say something to us, they decided to walk by and, and decided to say really crappy things to us as they walked by. You know, when I got when I first got here, I was told that AEPI was honestly, truly one of the centers of Jewish life in the San Luis Obispo community. And, you know, right now we have about a, more than 100 members in our organization who show consistent membership. And if you want to attack a whole body of Jewish individuals, you know, it's just it's like a, we have a big target on our back. You know, it's like everyone knows exactly who we are. Okay, now at this point, you're going to hear Rabbi Micah Hyman, who was walking around with us. So, yeah, are the brothers tighter after after this incident over the last 12 months? Yeah, I would 100% say that they are. I think that uh, this really spurred another, I guess, kind of spurred a like really rebirthing of people's identity for an affirmation of being Jewish. You know, obviously, I feel like a lot of American Jewish individuals that come to college, they Maybe they felt like in their past they were forced to be a part of a community that, you know, by, the, by their families, they grew up that way. And mm-hmm. it's not, not that they were forced, but like they were, they, it was just like more socially acceptable to follow the way of the way their family raised them. And when they come to college, they don't, you know, their family's gone. So, I mean, the one, in addition to the reason I, I love, I love the fraternity because I feel like I can practice Judaism with like a bunch of close friends. And, you know, definitely, definitely a huge part of my identity, my Jewish identity, is being a part of AEPI. But after the event on our house, it not only brought us closer together, but it really, like, made us want to participate in the Jewish community of San Luis Obispo so much more. There's no doubt. 100%. Um, I'm glad we got that consequence. Or not consequence. I'm glad we got the byproduct. Yeah. So, yeah, 100%. I say, shit makes the best manure, and you guys chose to plant a seed. <laughs> yeah. You chose to plant a seed. Oh, yeah. 100% agree. Leo and Stephanie, what do we even make of this? That in 2022, on a campus in California, progressive blue state California, the AEPI brothers and all of their guests at their parties have to endure anti-Jewish slurs weekly. I don't even know where to begin. 
it's so weird because it almost feels like no one knew it was a Jewish fraternity until it was like publicly identified as such by the swastikas being drawn. And, you know, the thing that I really loved hearing is this this idea that Hayden and all these guys sort of became more proudly Jewish because of it. Like once you're forced mm-hmm. to confront what people feel about Jews, like that was sort of this weird silver lining of it, that they all are actually much more engaged with their local Jewish community, that like there, there have been really positive things. I think it's disgusting though, because it, this idea of kids on, unco- I, I know you like, we know what those kids are like, right? They're walking by a house and they're just going to yell a slur. Like you would never do that. It seems unlikely that that would be tolerated for other groups. And it just seems really creepy and gross. And I hate it. Seems unlikely it would be tolerated. Can you imagine the national level news reports if there were an African-American sorority that had to endure anti-black slurs weekly from people walking? I mean, the media would be camped out there as they should be, right? I mean, that we. but why is it that the Jewish house is expected to endure this? I, I can't even, and you know, I mean, Stephanie, you and I are, we are not the anti-Semitism hunters. We tend to give people passes and figure like things are pretty good. And what's so interesting is they don't feel they should go to the administration necessarily. Maybe they feel not a lot would be done. Maybe they Didn't feel- the administration them- refuse them the funds to- wash the swastika off the sidewalk? You know, I didn't go too deep into that. I mean, you know, they're probably an off-campus entity that technically has no relationship to the school as many fraternities are. I don't know. I just, I, I'm i a little bit, I'm gobsmacked and befuddled and all sorts of other things. I mean, I would love to hear, I mean, I think the people I want to hear from are people who really understand Greek culture on campuses. I don't know, Stephanie, like- It's not Greek culture. It's, no, no, it's it's just kids coming to part. Like, I don't know necessarily that they're all Greek-affiliated people walking by those parties. Maybe it is. I think it's it's not the Greek system. I think it's drunk kids in college. And I think that there's some sort of social caste system. I, I think it's just, it's weird. Um, but drunk kids reacting to an atmosphere in which it's completely fine to yell those slurs. Because again, I imagine those drunk kids don't go around yelling the N-word because they understand that that comes into consequences and yelling, hey, you know, kike doesn't carry the same weight. Now, why is that? I don't know. I just feel bad for these kids, but I'm so impressed by, you know, the way that they've mobilized. These guys and and all of the community around them are extraordinary humans. Now, interestingly, it should be said that it turns out the graffiti artist, I can't believe I just said that, the graffiti artist who drew the swastika. The art major. Was on a rampage and went all over campus and in similar handwriting and with similar paint, drew other stuff. But nowhere else, as I understand it, did said artist draw specifically anti-ethnic bigoted slurs. Only at the Jew house did the artist think, oh, wait, I know what would work here. I know the right It was like, the the food in the cafeteria sucks. The pool is way too cold. Fucking Jews. It's like, wait, what? Hey, J. Crew, uh, hit us up with your thoughts. 914-570-4869. AE Pie Forever. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture, 
As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. If you listen to this show, you know we've been talking a lot about schlock rock, the Jewish rock and rollers, after the collective outcry from the J. Crew that Mark did not know about schlock rock, did not know about one <laughs> Lenny Solomon. We remedied that as quickly as possible and invited him on the show. I think you'll all really enjoy it. I stepped off the bus in Mobile, Alabama. The sun was slowly setting on the bay. It was six o'clock on a summer Friday. Lenny Solomon, let me tell you how I learned about schlock rock. I was at Shul a few weeks ago, and I had just gotten back from Mobile, Alabama. And a friend of mine came up to me, and we were chatting, and he said, Mobile, like, like Minion Man. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, the song. And I said, what song? And he said, you don't know that song? He said, you're, you're the world's leading Jewish podcaster. You don't know that song? I mean, this is professional malpractice. And so then, of course, I went and listened to the song, and the song was amazing. And then we talked about it on the show. And then after we talked about it on the show, I got smacked down by all of our listeners who wrote in and said, how on earth could they not know about schlock rock? It was so essential to my upbringing, many of them from the modern Orthodox community. Tell us a little bit about the band. How did it get started? What was the idea? And, and you know, what, what is this thing? Okay, so in a nutshell, basically in 1981, I was 20 years old. Sounds like uh, Jackson Brown. In 81, I was 20 years old and I called the road my own. No, so anyway... In 1981, I get this phone call from a friend of mine. He's a drummer. He says, Lenny, you want to go play an NCSY Shabbaton, which is an, a national conference of synagogue youth convention where- It's a modern Orthodox youth group. Yeah, I had never actually been to any growing up. Uh, I grew up in Kew Gardens, Queens, and I said, okay, what, you know, whatever that is, it, it, you know, it pays. So I, I figured I'll, I'll do the gig. And it was at these Shabbatons that I watched- these advisors get up on a chair during Shabbat and they would do parodies. They would do song parodies. And I thought to myself, you know, I could, I could do this. So I started writing my own. The first one that I wrote was Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Pat Benatar. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. For those of our listeners who don't know, shot, right. what is that? Shot means explanation. And it's like the student talking to a rabbi who's about to fail him. Got it. Got it. Okay. So he says, well, you're a real tough Rebbe with a long history <laughs> of failing us in sheer so easily. That's okay. Let's see how you do it. Open those Sepharim, Sepharim books. We'll learn right through it. Hit me with your best shot, right? Anyway, I joined this band. I formed this band called Kesher. Kesher, which means connection, was a Hebrew pop band and we put out three albums this song was the last track on the record we made a record it was 1984 so it was the last track the record did very well kesher i did three albums with kesher i wrote 13 out of their 28 songs this song was the beginning of schlock rock. After that, I wrote a Barbanel from the Beach Boys. A ba 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 Barbanel. Ba 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 ba
Barbanel was a 15th century uh, finance minister to Queen Isabella of Spain. And oh instead of Barbara God. Ann, we had a Barbanel. So Schlockrock, by the way, I, I named it Schlockrock because Schlock in Yiddish means secondhand or, or almost like junk. It's, it's a derogatory name, and this was secondhand rock. I was taking rock songs, making them secondhand, changing the words. Now, believe it or not, I was actually following other parody artists, some of them in the, in the secular field, like Weird Al Yankovic, Tom Lehrer, Alan Sherman, and some of them in the Jewish field, the Rechnitzer Rejects and Country Yussi and the Stiebelhoppers. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with any of those guys. But those guys were before me. And of course, the first one was Mickey Katz, Mickey Katz from the vaudeville days, uh, who happened to be Joel Gray's father and Jennifer Gray's grandfather. So Mickey Katz was a big Yiddish parody artist, just a FYI. Anyway, so 86 comes and I have now 11 song parodies and I decide, you know what? Let's go into the studio and make an album. So I, I get my friends together. Now, we, we didn't really have any money. I used $6,000 of my own money and I borrowed money from my father, my uncle, my music teacher. And I go into the studio and the studio was 39th Street Music, which was where Ashford and Simpson did Solid as a Rock. Uh, Chaka Khan, the song came out. It was a regular top of the line music studio in 1986, 85, 86. So they say to me, it's $180 an hour. And I say, I don't have $180 an hour. They say, well, you could work from midnight to 8 a.m. for $60 an hour. And we will give you an engineer, an assistant engineer, and a slave. A slave? Yeah. I said, what's a slave? They said, the slave you send out for coffee at four in the morning. So I said, okay. I'm there. And we did this album, Learning is Good. Schlockrock Learning is Good. I put it out on cassette only. We didn't, records were already gone. So I put that, put out this album and three months later, it, it starts to catch on. And um, I get this letter from a lady in Florida. My brother hates Judaism and he's listening to your cassette around the clock. Keep up the good work. And then another letter like that. And then I got a letter, Dear Mr. Solomon, if the Abarbanel would know what you did to his name, he'd be rolling in his grave. The good Jews hated you and the bad Jews loved you, basically. Yes, in the beginning, the rabbis would come up to me and say, what is this? What are you doing? I said, this is fun. It's rock and roll. It's Jewish. It's educational. But I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest with you. What I was doing was I was just following my gut, which is what this whole career is, which I never, I never anticipated in a million years that I would become a Jewish rock and roller, uh, I actually have a degree in accounting and I worked <laughs> as an accountant from 82 to 85. Now, in 85, I left accounting and I went into music full-time and I become the music director of the Jewish Public School Youth Organization, which has public schools where you go in and you sing songs and they're expecting to hear Havana Nagila and I go in and I play Born in the USA, now I'm making... <laughs> I had all these songs. I had original songs and I had parodies. And that's what I used as curriculum. Schlockrock, I used it as curriculum. I did 100 shows in the public schools. And by 88, after the third or fourth album, I'm starting to get calls for concerts. And from 88 to 96, I did 100 shows a year all over the world. Do you miss accounting? 
Well, I still do accounting for myself. Like I do my own books. Believe it or not, accounting and music are, have synchronicity. They're, the math and music are on the same level. And I enjoy math. I enjoy the, the concept of balancing out, getting to a zero balance. But no, I, I don't. I would never have wanted to do it for my whole life, which is why after one year of doing accounting, I already had a midlife crisis. And <laughs> I'm a huge Weird Al fan. I think he's probably American Mozart. I think he's probably one of the greatest musical geniuses we have. It seems to me, however, like there's a certain kind of inherent disrespect paid to or rather inflicted upon musicians who use humor in their work because somehow we got into this groove of thinking that if you're really, really funny, if you tell jokes, if you do parodies, you're not a serious musician. You're not rock and roll, man. And it seems to me like we are kind of getting it a little bit backwards. Where do you stand on this issue? Do you agree? Well, first thing is, I think that Weird Al is a genius. I mean, that guy... The lyrics that he has written, the and the way he writes it, and the way he parodies a song, it's it, it's incomparable. That's what I shoot for when I'm writing a parody. I, I write to be as witty as him. By the way, insane that he's not Jewish. Let's talk about that. Not a drop of Jewish blood in him. Unbelievable, you know. But he he is a genius, and yes, he's disrespected. That the whole parody industry is disrespected as a gimmick type. You know, it's like a gimmick and. It's a shame. It's a shame. I think because it's shtick. You know, there's a lot of shtick to this. Like, for instance, there's a band out there called Guns and Haroses. <laughs> you know, whenever you hear a very, very clever name, which is a takeoff on something else, you think, ah, gimmick, 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 gimmick. So that's that's what it is. It's it's I, It'll never change. But I have given a lot of people many, many hours of enjoyment. That's for sure. <laughs> so so when you were coming up as a parodist and as a full-time musician, when you finally made the transition, left behind your beloved accounting world, you know, initially you were getting pushback from some rabbis, from people who thought this was heretical and, and wrong. My sense is now that any OU, NCSY, modern Orthodox camp is excited to have you, that that is all gone. Am I wrong about that? Are there still people who feel like this you know, turns kids away from the, the true the true path to put them, you know, on a different derrick than just true piety. I mean, where, where are those lines drawn now? Who still doesn't like you? The rabbis eventually came around. It took them around three or four albums. And when they came around and put their stamp of approval on it, what do you think happened? My age group dropped dramatically. Like all of a sudden, instead of playing to high school kids, I'm looking in the audience and I'm seeing seven-year-old kids, eight-year-old kids, five-year-old kids, four-year-old kids. And I'm thinking to myself, my lyrics are getting more and more complex. And my age group is dropping. And I thought to myself, can you believe this? And there was only one explanation. The explanation is that the rabbis put put this down. You had the Heksher. Yes, but I didn't. I didn't get the Heksher from the really right-wing people. And as far as NCSY goes, and I love them, they don't really hire me so much. You know who hires me the most? Chabad. Well, they understand about spreading a message. But it's so funny to me because it feels like what you're doing is like these, first of all, I know you'd make your own music, but like these riffs, these making Jewish riffs on on sort of secular 
works of music. I mean, there's something very almost like Talmudic, something so Jewish about what you're doing, which is basically like finding intricacies and playing with what is essentially text, right? Music lyrics, existing lyrics. And so do you see yourself as in sort of like a long line besides, of course, you know, the Mickey Katzes of the specifically music world? Do you see yourself as part of a a broader Jewish text-based tradition? I see myself as a informal Jewish outreach educator, somebody whose goal is to be that conduit between the world of the secular music and the music of Hasidic, Hasidic pop. So I, I always think that you can't get here, to, to, you can't get to the world of Jewish music without going through me, if you're in the secular world. I, you know, I, I also look at it as educational, meaning that the, that the teachers can teach a lesson and then they could use my song to back up what they've taught. So like, for instance, I have a song on Rav Yehuda Hanasi, who compiled the Mishnah. And I did, you ain't never had a friend like me, Rav Yehuda Hanasi. <laughs> and it talks about his entire life and the things that he did. And that's what I look at myself as an informal Jewish outreach educator through music and I've done 170 approximately song parodies, but I've also written over 200 original songs. And really my focus is shifting away from parody. I will do more parody albums, but they're coming far and few between. You spend a lot of time listening to rock and roll, but unlike other people who perform straight up rock and roll or people like Weird Al who perform parodies, your songs, particularly the parodies, sometimes strike me as being really punk rock defiant by taking a very particular cultural trait and sort of turning it on its head. I'm thinking particularly of, uh, it's well, it's not an Eric Clapton song. It's a J.J. Kale song made famous by Eric Clapton, Cocaine. Right. And your version is? Amen. When you're writing a song like that, yeah. which you know is about sort of the depth of depravity, about drug use, and turning it into a song that's about prayer, Do you feel like Sid Vicious? Do you feel like you're doing the most punk rock thing ever? You want to know what I feel? I feel like I'm redeeming the song and I'm giving it a second life. Meaning, so I have the song on the Broadway album to Maria. You know, Maria, which I changed to Takiya. I just heard a sound called Takiya. So... I, I we did a lot of stuff that was very wash this way instead of walk this way. <laughs> we're the guys who bless and boogie in the shoe, and we're here to tell you something new. It's something done before. You eat the bread, and it's done by every Jew. It's called the Kilas Your Diet. That's washing your hands in a language that we call Hebrew. It don't take much time, and it doesn't cost a dime, and it's real, real easy to do. It's true. We, we really didn't shy away from using anything as long as I could get a message across that worked. You can't just write your own words. A parody has got to be crafted and it's got to be, it's got to mirror the lyrics. So when you take the song like Summer Loving from Summer Nights from Greece, you know, Summer Loving had me a blast. And I wrote, some who love him don't really last. And I talk about Sukkot, right? <laughs> you can't just write your own words. It has to mirror the original lyrics. So cocaine or amen, when you're sitting in shul, you gotta know the rules. Amen. The first words that you say when you are learning to pray is amen. V'yimru, v'yimru, v'yimru. Amen. Right? (laughs) 
I don't know, it just, it, it worked. So if it works, I use it and I didn't care. And maybe that was why I got the, the pushback in the beginning because it was disrespectful a little bit. It was a, what let's call it out of the box. It was unorthodox. <laughs> Sorry guys. Uh, That's all but, right. But I'll just tell you that the greatest thing about schlock rock is that we transcended all denominations. I have played reform, reconstructionist, conservative, orthodox, Chabad, wherever. We cross. We cross all barriers and we play to the Jew. And I, I think that that's something else. I love that. And it's it's sort of what we're trying to do here also. I mean, I think we've sort of inadvertently modeled ourselves in, in your image. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's very nice of you to say that. But you guys are the most popular podcast in all of Judaism. That's what I've heard. Well, it's, I mean, you've heard it from us. We that's At least we claim that. You know, no one else is going around claiming that. So, Lenny Solomon, we love your work. And as I said, this was a personal, you know, sort of, sort of uh, tikkun. This was a, a, a really come to Jesus for me, having been upbraided by my people for not knowing your work. I've been on a journey. I've gotten to know your work really deeply. And now to actually meet you um, is, a, is a great honor. So thank you for being on Unorthodox. Thank you. It's, it's been great to be here. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. 
You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. There are Gentiles of the week, and then there are superior, unforgettable Gentiles of the week. And Devaney Lozer, who studies the works of Jane Austen and teaches them at Arizona State University, and also roller derbies under her alter ego, Stone Cold Jane Austen, is one of the greatest Gentiles of the week, nay, guests we've ever had. She joined me and Stephanie a couple weeks back. Devani, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week on Unorthodox. Have you been a Gentile of the Week before on a podcast? No, I have not. It's my pleasure and honor. It's sort of like getting tenure. No, it's like getting a named chair, actually. As a member of a household that currently is obsessed with Jane Austen, my wife is reading different Jane Austen novels to two of our children. I want you to sum up for me how it is that Jane Austen became so famous, because one of your books is about the kind of the, the making of the Jane Austen we know, and I'm, I'm dying to know. Yeah, and the book is called The Making of Jane Austen. But we've told so many stories of how she became famous. And what I tried to do is to dig down into the everyday people and readers and the undersung. Wasn't it Alicia Silverstone who made her famous? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no one had heard of her before Clueless, right? Oh, sorry, you go ahead, you tell us. So, you know, I think one of the misconceptions about Jane Austen is that she wasn't famous in her lifetime. And I think we could say that she had a kind of moderate fame and moderate success in her lifetime. Enough success that the Prince Regent asked her to dedicate a novel to him. So, you know, that that's already a certain level of right, success. Right, that ain't nothing. By yeah. yeah. But her name wasn't known except among a small group of people. One of her novels, Mansfield Park, wasn't reviewed at all. Another, the one after that, Emma, got a great review in the quarterly review that turned out to be by Sir Walter Scott. So we've undersold, I think, how important she was in the 18 teens. She was moderately successful for what she was doing. But it's by the 1830s and after that she becomes a household name. And from there, it never really stopped. And so how did she become a household name? What, what happened? I, I think there were a number of ways you could tell this story. One is you could tell it from above. You could say critics and important culture makers noticed her. So somebody like Thomas Babington Macaulay, a famous historian and critic, noticed her and loved her. Uh, Tennyson famously noticed and loved her. So you, you could tell the story that way. But there are other pieces of evidence that Writers were stealing from her, plagiarizing some of her plot points in the 1820s without credit. Readers were returning to her again and again in what were called circulating libraries, kind of like the Netflix of books, right? You would you would go in and rent it and then talk about it with your friends. So even when her novels were not in print, they were being read by large numbers of people who appreciated them. I mean, except Northanger Abbey, which no one's ever actually read, right? <laughs> not true. I've tried it five times and it's so short. And I think... I have a couple of days I could knock off a Jane Austen and I can't get past page 20. I mean, is it, it's the worst of them, right? I love parts of it. The worst of them is a hard, that's a hard thing. It's like saying, which child is your least favorite, right? We, we don't do this. Jane Austen <laughs> don't do this. But I can understand why it's your least favorite. I get that. I do think chapter five, where she's defending the novel, is one of the most important and interesting chapters. So even if you can't make your way through the whole novel, <laughs> read chapter, read chapter five. five. Can you just repeat for our listeners the phrase you used to describe Jane Austen devotees? Janeite is the word that many of us <laughs> use. And, and what is this community? I mean, this is part of how she sort of has become this larger-than-life literary figure. I mean, particularly among, among women, it seems, right? Women and literate men. Y yes, yes. Some of us read 
<laughs> Isn't that an oxymoron, Mark? I just saw some. We don't join book clubs, but some of us read. <laughs> you you have book uh, books on here and authors on here all the time, so I know you're giving me a hard time. But but I would I would say that you know this has been a phenomenon um, among male and female readers for more than a century. <laughs> <laughs> like before Belieber, there were Janeites. This is amazing. I would tell Clara she's a Janeite. My eleven-year-old is definitely. It, it was it was much more common to to affiliate yourself by uh, with an ITA and an author's name. So you know, we we now talk about Dickensians, right? This is a word that's used for people who love Charles Dickens. But there were all of these labels about how people would affiliate themselves with authors. So Austin wasn't completely unusual in this period. What was unusual is they took her first name, and I think that sticks in the crop. Right, people because the wrong people who are into Shaw are Shavians, right? Right, and which I love. Okay, so. You know, your day hustle is leading Jane Austen scholar and scholar of 19th century English literature. How did you get into roller derby? Oh, this is this could be like such an in-the-weeds long story. But the, the short version is I was an ice skater as a kid. And then in my 40s, it was a student and a special collections librarian who allowed me to tag along with them when they went to the roller rink for 80s night, sort of retro night. And I said, I was actually alive in the 80s. You weren't. So you should really allow me to come along with you, even though I'm old. <laughs> and when, when we were there, one of my, my friends, a librarian, got recruited to the local roller derby team. And she said, I'm not going to practice unless the other of you come with me. And so... I thought, hey, I'm probably too old to do this. And she said, you're coming. And so I got my start in the roller derby world in my early 40s and haven't looked back. And can you tell us first a little bit about your name and, and how names function in this universe? So names are often puns, right? They're, they are pop culture mixed with high culture, low culture, high culture together, and they're often puns. Uh, so one of my favorite names from, and there's actually a, a team, a Jewish roller derby team, and one of my favorite names from that group is Kosher Assault, <laughs> which I think is a you know beautiful, beautiful roller derby name. So you're getting the idea there, right? So my name has actually come up from with by this friend of mine, the special collections librarian, and she said you should be Stone Cold Jane Austen. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this is absolutely perfect. Did you know of the pro wrestler Stone Cold Steve Austin? I did because my brother was a huge WWE fan when I was a kid. So I, I can't say I was a fan, but he was. And so I knew the world through my brother. And of course, my friend knew that Jane Austen was what I do for a living. And she said, you need to mash these up. And I, it's just been such a gift that she gave me. And I love that you've brought literature into your your roller derby career. You've also written about roller derby. You know, about, you have a piece in Slate making some really interesting arguments. It seems like you don't do anything halfway, which I really appreciate. Are there ways in which taking Jane Austen into the, the rink, how has that changed your thinking more broadly? Or is it still just a fun thing you do on the side? That's a really good question. I think it, it's sort of a professor's occupational hazard that we turn everything into a research problem. So maybe it's not a surprise that you know, I would turn roller derby into an occasion for writing. For a while, I sort of hid the fact that I was doing this weird roller derby thing. And I kept the alter ego separate from my professor life. But increasingly, people became as interested in the roller derby part as they were in the Jane Austen part, or they loved the fact that these two things went together that they didn't necessarily think go together. <laughs> so, so it's now, uh, you know, a fully, fully informed part of myself, these, uh, you know, the Janeite part, the professor part, and the uh, Stone Cold Jane Austen alter ego part. I guess the, a boring question is, what's your favorite book? But maybe like, is there a favorite overlooked Jane Austen book that people should be reading? If you've read a few, you've read the 
the ones that, you know, are assigned in school? Is there like a, a weird one? And then is there like a remake, a sort of a modern pop cultural take on one of Jane Austen's stories that it just like, even you as a highbrow professor, just like love, love to love? Oh, that's such a great question, Stephanie. And I, I always have to tell people, I am not afraid to give the cliched answer. Pride and Prejudice is my favorite. I don't care if that's everyone else's favorite. It's my favorite for a reason, and I'm sticking with it. It is, you know, for my money, just the most amazing novel. I see something new every time I read it. I'm teaching it to my students this week, and I know that I'm obsessive and, like, a bit crazy about it. But to try to bring them into that opening line, to the characters, to the story, I, I never get tired of it. And so for that reason, it's, it's my favorite. It's beautiful on the level of the sentence, the plot, and the character, and it still just speaks to me, even after having read it, gosh, I don't know, maybe 25 times or more, a crazy number of times. Uh, so in terms of the second question you asked, Stephanie, about the lesser known one, I think a lot of people are surprised when they read an early novella Jane Austen wrote that wasn't published in her lifetime called Lady Susan. Have you run across that one at all? No, I've never heard of it. Nor I. So some people know it now through the Whit Stillman film, which he retitled Love and Friendship, that came out a couple of years ago. Fine film, very funny. Yeah. He picks up on the comic elements of it. He just changed the title. And, you know, I think he did so for lots of, lots of reasons. He chose a different Austin title. <laughs> Love and Friendship is a different Austin title of a short piece. But Lady Susan is the story that's there. And she is a villainous, she's a delicious villain. You, I find, I just love to hate her, is what I would say. <laughs> she's, she's definitely manipulative, morally suspect, like awful. All, down the line, awful. And yet you watch her manipulating these characters and the kind of limited sphere in which she can exercise power. And there is something kind of incredible about her. She's an older widow, 34, which qualifies as... Oh, ancient. Right. (laughs) Sad, (laughs) but an amazing character. And uh, if you think you know Austen and you think you've read it all and you haven't read Lady Susan, your eyes are going to be opened. Do you have any students or colleagues whom you've drawn to Jane Austen and drawn to roller derby? Is there a kind of person who you think, oh, she's going to be into, or he's going to be into both? Uh, You know, what I'm drawn to is a good question. There are certainly people who've, come along with me to practices, sometimes colleagues too. And it's not, it's not a world for everybody, the roller derby world, but everybody loves to, uh, you know, at least get on skates. So in 2012, I led this, it was kind of a teacher's class, a class for teachers. It was a National Endowment for Humanities seminar for college teachers on Jane Austen and her contemporaries. And one night, all of us, so it was over a dozen of us, went to the roller rink. All of these Jane Austen professors, we all went together to the roller rink and skated. And I, that is not a, a future I ever envisioned for myself. <laughs> oh, and I think not a moment that they thought they were going to have in a kind of summer school class, but it was a blast. We all had such fun on skates. Awesome. And you did not give me the answer to your favorite adaptation of oh, Jane Austen's yes. story. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me of that. You know, this, I think there's a lot to the one you see at a kind of formative moment. And for me, that 1995 BBC, Mr. Darcy, it was the year before I married my husband and, you know, around the time I met him. And I think that one just is going to stick with me for the rest of my life for that reason. It's probably, it's a great adaptation, no question. But I don't see anything overtaking it for me, that six-hour version, because of when I first saw it. I also love the Only Sense and Sensibility, written by Emma Thompson, for which she deservedly won the Academy Award. And the Clueless, we already mentioned, right? Alicia Silverstone and Clueless, Amy Huckerling's so film. 
So is it a mistake that I keep hanging out to these three? I can tell you others that are my favorites, but those are my top three. And they're all from right around the same time. And they probably have to do with my own coming of age as well as they're just being great works of art. So listen, as our Gentile of the Week, one of the great honors you get is to ask us a GOTW question, if you have one. Is there anything that we as, you know, ordained Jewish experts, uh, ordained by our fans, can, can answer for you about Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish anything? I do have a question I'm curious about. So when I told my friend Sam Cohen that I was going to be Gentile of the Week on this show, he said to me, at least they didn't say shiksa. And... And I told Sam I had not been called Shiksa since the 1900s. And so my question for you is, how has the word Shiksa changed in the 21st century in its meaning or the way it's used or who's supposed to use it or not use it? How has the word changed? Do young people still use it? And if you want to say anything more about the word, the more offensive male counterpart word. Yeah, I mean, Shiksa and Shagitz, which is the male the male counterpart, as you referenced, um, I, I think, honestly, I would never call someone a shiksa. I think it's just mean. I think that there are, however, a lot of women who will call themselves shiksas um, today, right? There's, you know, there was a blog that was called like Shiksa in the Kitchen. I mean, so basically there are women who marry Jewish men and who identify as shiksas and they sort of take power in reclaiming that term. And I actually love that. I think that any time that we can take words that are offensive, I, Mark and I fall very, very differently on the spectrum of, of feelings about the, the term Jewish American princess. Um, again, another term that some young women have reclaimed as their own. Um yeah, I think Shagitz is much more problematic than Shiksa, but also weirdly much lesser known. Like Shiksa is in pop culture, right? I mean, for what it's worth, it was actually Wendy Wasserstein who wrote a memoir called Shiksa Goddess. So obviously tongue, <laughs> tongue was planted firmly in cheek there. Uh, so I agree with Stephanie. Um, it's kind of me- the people who say it mean it meanly, right? If you're calling someone else a Shiksa, it's often the stereotype was that it was, you know, a Jewish guy's mother who was upset he was dating a Gentile woman. That was 95% of how it would have been used in pop culture in the 50s through the 80s. I think Stephanie's right in everything she says, right down to the fact that Shagitz is even cruder. It, it comes from the Yiddish for vermin or, or creepy crawly thing or worm. But here's the thing. Do 20-year-olds today even know the term Shiksa? I mean, I always apply the test of my college students. I teach college. You teach college. Do you think any of the kids in your classes, Jew or Gentile, would have that in their vocabulary? I don't I think so. I have never asked that. I've never asked that. I think it's gone. I think it's a Yiddish word that doesn't have much currency anymore. But, you know, we'll call you a Shiksa if you want, just for old time's sake. We'll call you a Shiksa goddess. I mean, by the way, my favorite thing about how, I mean, how sort of like ethnocentric Jews are is that they have, first of all, like the term Gentile, which is like, people who are not us. We are, what, 0.2% of the, po- 2%, what, what, what tiny percentage of the population are we? We have a word for people who are not us. Us and the Mormons have that. And then the sort of the slur version of that, which is goy, a lot of people come on the show and they say, oh, I'm the goy of the week. And I was like, I wouldn't call you that because that, again, is an offensive term for someone who isn't Jewish, which is like such a bizarre recasting of the Jewish experience where we have mean words for people who aren't us. Um, but I believe that there is power in language, as I know you probably believe as well. And so, if you want to be a shiksa, you can be one. If if not, not. I call you whatever you want. I mean, I would prefer to call you Stone Cold Jane Austen. I would like that more too. I, I'm also just interested is if this word will survive and how it will survive. And so you've given I, I me think, a lot to think about there. I think Mark's right. I think it's an old fact. I think it's not a cool word, right? Like, I don't think there are young people today being like, oh, I'm a shiksa. 
But we should, you guys, you need to, the two of you need to find out because you, you two are in contact with the youngs. Maybe I'll ask, ask my students on Monday. What do they call these days? I actually wonder if, if Jap is, current. I mean, we've, we've talked about Jap so much and it's always, I think with reference to people your age and up, Stephanie, and you're in your early thirties. I don't think 18 year, I don't think my daughters know it who are, no. you know, ages eight to 15. I don't think they know it. I wonder though, is there something more broadly going on linguistically with these sorts of like terms that are becoming just entirely outdated and mm. outmoded? Hmm. Yeah, I, mean, nice. I, can, I can see arguments be made that it's positive if, if some of these terms disappear. But when some of them get, uh, you know, as you were talking about, Mark, sort of re-upped and, and reclaimed, that's fascinating too. And so I'll be, I'll be watching what happens to this Well, board. so then here's a question for you. Has Jainite always, has, have there been like associations with the term Jainite? Has it been like, was it, is it a, it's an in-group thing, but I mean, was it, did it ever mean something bad? I mean, even just the fact that it's not Austinite, it's Jainite. It's been used by intellectuals as a way to dismiss a fan culture in the past. So I think up until quite recently, it was more unusual for a professor to affiliate with the label J Knight. And I would say I still have some colleagues who won't do it because it just sounds lightweight and uncritical. I embrace the critical and uncritical parts myself, which will not surprise you. So that part doesn't bother me, but I do think there are people who'll say, I'm an Austinite. I won't call myself a Jainite because it's insulting to refer to her by her first name. Hmm. And there are people who will say, you know, I am an Austin critic, not a Jainite. <laughs> As people from a tradition whose greatest texts were written by a guy with only a first name, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> I think we're, I'm okay with Jainite, five books of Jain being every bit as good as the five books of Moses. Thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week, Devany Lozer. Oh, Mark, Stephanie, this has been such a pleasure. Could talk to you for ages longer. Love the podcast. Thanks for having me here. And I think we're going to sing you out with the, the poem set to music of your former colleague, the very fine poet Cornelius Eady, who wrote, uh, who, who wrote you a, a theme song, as it were. I, I was shocked when he presented it to me and am still honored that this is a connection that, uh, and, and a gift that he gave me. Awesome. Devany, thanks so much. Thank you. This was such a blast. Likes the wind, elbows and knees, just a blur as she spins. No apologies. A gallant pals down on Durban night. Time for some fun, time for a fight. Stone Cold Jane, Stone Cold Jane. In the classroom is theory, on the track is pain. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? There is only one mazel tov this week. I think it goes out from all three of us. I think it goes out from most humans living on this planet to the Jew of the week and every week from now on till the end of time. Vladimir Zelensky, as the New York Post headline so beautifully put it, give him Zell. Fight like (laughs) Zell. Also, I hear he's an amazing curler. Also, everyone should probably go to Times of Israel reporter Amy Spiro's Twitter because she shared an important video of him that I don't want to describe here, but uh, from his past days in the entertainment world. I don't in any way want to step on that Mazel Tov. I join in it. I ally myself with it. Um, but I do want to want to use my, my moment to help out a listener who writes to us, Hello, all. I'm hoping you can use the power of the pod to crowdsource and help me find the origin of a very funny clip I saw when I was channel surfing. A man learns that his ex-wife's father has just died. He convinces his friend to go with him to pay a shiva call. At his father-in-law's home, he picks a fight with his ex and she throws him and his friend out. 
When the door slams behind him, he says to his friend with great satisfaction, best Shiva call ever. Please help me find the name of this TV show or movie that it comes from so I can enjoy the whole thing. Thanks. I love you guys. And then he signs his name with a signature that raises so many questions. He says, Mark, parenthesis, once upon a time, Zamanowitz, but now Smith. So Mark <laughs> Smith, nay, Mark Zamanowitz, wants help with this clip. And Mark, we will give you help with this clip. I think our listeners are going to find the answer for you. If you tell us but what I the really deal wanted, is with your name. But you got to write back and tell us the, what the deal was with the name change. What was so wrong with being a Zamanowitz? I, I would love being a Zamanowitz. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Associate producer is Quinn Waller. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get unorthodox onesies, mugs, t-shirts, diapers, socks, and kipote. Maybe not all that stuff, but a lot of stuff at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Joseph Black at Temple Emmanuel in Denver, Colorado. And we come to you for a little while longer, but not so much longer, from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs>